Hi, this is Paula Widobro. I'm the cinematographer of CODA, and this is the Go Creative Show. Hello, and welcome to the Go Creative Show, a podcast for filmmakers. My name is Ben Consoli, and today we speak with Paula Widobro, the cinematographer of CODA. Paula, welcome to the show, and congratulations. Thank you so much. There is so much to talk about. Obviously, CODA won uh, this year's Best Movie of the Year, the Academy Award. Like, it's the top prize. We're only a couple days away from the awards, so I can still see that awards glow on your face, and I love it and cannot wait to talk to you about it. Uh, but there's so much more. You were the cinematographer for, you did Barry, you did Physical, Fargo, Pam and Tommy, so you have so much work that we're going to dive into, and I cannot wait. But before we get there, want to very quickly mention our sponsor today, Filmmakers Academy. Master your craft at Filmmakers Academy. Visit gocreativeshow.com forward slash Filmmakers Academy and get 10% off with promo code GOCREATIVE10. Also want you to follow us on your favorite podcast app as well as Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube where you can not only hear the show, but see the show. All things Go Creative Show at gocreativeshow.com. So Paula, we're just a couple days out Um, What an experience. Uh, First of all, just even going to the Oscars and then to win the best picture of the, I mean, how do you feel right now? Yeah, no, I mean, it was quite surreal uh, and I still, I still don't believe it, but I'm, I'm super happy about it. Yeah. What, what was the experience like? Just first of all, have you gone to an Academy Awards ceremony before this? No, this is the first time and it was quite amazing to have been working with Sean for such a long time, uh, pretty much since we were in film school. And then to have gone from doing short films as a student to seeing her win an Academy Award, it was quite incredible. And I love being there with her. So you've been working with Sean for quite a while, the director. Yes. Yeah, we met when uh, she was at the DWW program at AFI, and I was just finished going to AFI. And and then that short film also went to Cannes, and it won a prize there, and we've just had a lucky collaboration. So, I mean, obviously you've been working together with the director for quite a while, but was there something special about CODA that drew you in right away? What drew you to this project? I think mainly mainly working with Sean, just because we've sort of grown up together, and uh, and I love I love her leadership and her vision as a director, and also just working with her and and her family as well. Almost, where it's almost like a family thing, and yeah, I love the sincerity of her scripts and sort of the tone that that she gives to her projects and and yeah and I love like what drew me to the project was that it's a a family story but it it works in so many levels to me I love the whole aspect of shooting in Gloucester the community in there the fishing town I love the relationship between her and her parents like the sort of coming of age story and mm-hmm. and I love that she almost has to decide about her personal career and and her role as a daughter as well. 
I think all creative people can identify with that and relate to that story um, of just sort of like, you know, you kind of need to, in a lot of creative industries, you have to leave something behind to sort of make that leap. And I think that the, there's, the movie captures that moment perfectly. Um, before we dive into the movie, though, I, I mean, I have to ask you because the Academy Awards was so crazy this year with the Will Smith, um, Chris oh, Rock yeah. thing. It's like, what what was your what, what was your reaction to all of that? I mean, it was like it must have been so insane to be there and see something so crazy. Like, did you yeah. did you first think that it was staged at the beginning? I mean, maybe the slap for a second, but then the way he screamed at Chris Rock, it was so violent and inappropriate and unnecessary. And I feel it drew so much energy out of the room. And now it's everything that everyone's talking about. Does so, it, does it like, did it bother you at all knowing that, I mean, obviously everyone is talking about Coda at one, but the, but the, the story that came out of that was the slap like d did you think to yourself like oh my god this is it's getting in the way of what this whole award ceremony is supposed to be yeah no it was quite upsetting and and as a human being it also affected me to see someone so violent it was really unpleasant yeah i can imagine i mean it, it, just seeing it was so outrageous and so crazy <laughs> uh, you know i think if there is a silver lining in this for coda i think it probably drew so much attention to the ceremony, people that wouldn't have even otherwise seen it are now paying attention to this year. And I think as a result, more people will probably hear about CODA because of it in a crazy yeah. way. Yeah, no, I, I just think it's a shame, especially for the, the filmmaker that received the award from Chris Rock. Like, his moment was taken away, I, I feel. Yeah, it, it it certainly is. I mean, it really, I mean, come on. It, it was a ridiculous thing to do. And I think yeah. everyone knows, everyone involved, everyone watching, everyone knows it was just not a good moment for the industry at all. Not a good moment for humanity, <laughs> but yeah. it was certainly wild. So it must have been quite a, quite a story at all the parties afterwards. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but let's talk about CODA. So- for those of you guys that don't know, um, Coda, you know, chronicles a story of a deaf family. So a, a lot of the talent, a lot of the actors are signing. They're using sign language. And I'd love to know from a cinematography standpoint, Paula, like how does it change or what sort of impact does it have on the cinematography when, um, you know, so much of your lead talent is signing? Yeah, I mean, it, it really changed the process because we had to, when we were blocking the scenes, like there always, we always needed to go through translators. And so it would take a little bit of time, like for the message to travel back and forth. And then um, also with sign language, you, you cannot rely as heavily. Well, you can't frame on close-ups because you're basically cutting off language. So that was like one thing to learn and consider. And then also, actors like like sometimes when you're blocking scenes people can be walking away or saying something as they're turning whereas with sign language you always have to have eye contact and so that was just like a very different thing for us and have you worked with have you worked with talent that uses sign language before on on camera no no it was the first time and 
actually what was really surprising and and in a really good way was that the way Troy and and Marley would improvise the dialogue was actually a lot funnier than what I had read or I guess they just added a bunch of different layers to the message and stuff yeah. yeah, there was there was quite a bit of humor in there for sure, and um, it, 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 I think they did a really good job of expressing. Um, you know, I, I mean, when you're when you're watching sign language, so much of it is in the body language, so much more than just hands. It's like it's everything. It's eyes. It's face. It's where your head is. It's where your shoulders are. Like it's such an expressive language, and you can't rely on the subtleties that I think cinematographers have the benefit of when you can do those close-ups and go right into people's eyes. It's, it's pretty different. You have to, you have to pull back and capture a larger performance with a lot more, you know, a lot more physicality to it. Um, how did that impact the way that you shot these scenes or lit these scenes? Yeah, I think, I mean, also sometimes when, when you want to isolate actors for their sort of their single or their close-ups, like it's a lot easier if you can like frame closer, but if you're, if two people are sitting together, then how much tighter can you get without cutting their hands and stuff? So it was some of the things we were thinking. Um, and yeah, I mean, I guess sign language, they're also sort of describing it in images and, and telling a story. It's not, the same as like spoken language. Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely learn a lot about their culture and and sort of how another way of communicating. So, what were some of the surprises in this? Is your first time working with um, you know on screen talent using sign language? What were some of the surprises that you faced like at the beginning? Did you did you go through an extensive like prep process to get a sense of what kind of framing you would need to do? Mm, well, I mean, I think some of the things we sort of learn along the way and, and Sean really immersed herself in learning sign language. And uh, yeah, I guess it's just sort of also keeping the actor safe and communicating with them on set as well, especially on the boat and sort of respecting them and not like, tapping them to get their attention or so it's, it's just a different way of doing things. How does it change your lighting? Like, are, are you lighting it a different way? Are you adding more like the way you would add eye light to bring out someone's facial expressions? Are you adding extra light to people's hands to, to bring out, you know, all the details in the different, in the different movements? No, no, not so much. I think it's more a question of framing and blocking yeah, I can imagine it, you you are limited to not being able to go into those close-ups, which are just such an integral part of filmmaking that you it it must be kind of odd to not have that tool in your toolbox, if you will. Yeah, but I don't know. I mean, I think there was so much to photograph in in this story, like sort of all those landscapes and the, the beauty of Gloucester and nature and and the ocean, and then. It was also like photographing like the intimacy of the family and their relationship. And so I think, I mean, the story to me 
even though it was sort of a simple and warm story, had like a lot of levels where I felt the cinematography had to step back and, and sort of observe rather than like impose a style or something. Talk to me more about that. Like, wh what does that mean to you to step back? Mm, well, I think, I mean, some, some stories need to have sort of a more defined, clear style or, or they add to the story by being like darker or like you can sort of manipulate the viewer more through like lighting and, and like camera movement and, and I think with Koda, we, we, we chose to be more real and more grounded and sort of more natural and, and sort of, yeah, not calling attention to, to itself. The cam the camera itself, not calling attention to itself, you mean? Yeah. And also the lighting, like sort of more real and, and grounded. I think overwhelmingly the impression that I get and what, what I'm hearing from our audience and just reviews about Coda is that it is a very naturalistic look. I mean, it really feels as authentic as you could possibly be. Um, and I think a lot of that does have to do with the lighting, uh, particularly in the interiors, because I think you are really doing a great job in um, bringing out the, the real authentic textures in each person's home and even in the school and all those places. Um, but in particular, I'd like to focus on the way that you approach lighting interiors in Coda. And I want to focus on, I guess, Ruby's home. I think the way that you treat her bedroom is really interesting to me. A lot happens in there. It's a very warm space, um, very personal to her, but it has such a realistic look in there that I'd love to just get a sense of how you achieved that look. Yeah, I mean, I think... I think it's, I mean, even though it's a family story, it's also very much her story and, and sort of her trying to fit in with her family and sort of discovering herself. And I think that was like her own personal space where she would have time to like think about herself. And, and, and I think I love the warmness that we achieve. And like, for example, that scene where she's talking with, well, she's playing the song with her boyfriend like we wanted it to be intimate and to be like just sort of what it really feels like when you're young and you're first having like contact with like someone you may love and and sort of a little bit of innocence, but sort of step into adulthood as well. So, yeah. Yeah. How did you achieve that warmness? So like what, what were you... Was that a stage? Were you in an actual no, home? No, no, we were or? actually in a very, very small home that was falling down. And because it wasn't as safe, we couldn't even bring a dolly upstairs. And we had to limit the amount of people that could be upstairs. So I think the house had a lot of texture and character to it. And it, it was almost like a, another actor in the movie itself. And... Yeah, I mean, we were limited by not being able to remove any walls or like it, it all had to be real and, and practical. And I think that those limitations add to the realness and, and yeah. So that house, Ruby's house, the, uh, interior, exterior, downstairs, upstairs, that was all an actual Yeah, that was all, all in the an same actual home. location, yeah. That's great. 
In Gloucester? In, in Gloucester. Gloucester's basically my, you know, my backyard almost, about 20 minutes away. I'm, I'm oh, nice. close to Boston where I am. So, you know, this movie in particular, it, I think Boston has a way of, I mean, our film industry is thriving, as you know now, having shot here. But like, especially when a movie like this gets such high acclaim and winning all the awards, it's like, we really have a sense of pride in the city for our films. <laughs> so it yeah. definitely is. You did Boston right with this one, for sure. <laughs> oh, thank you. Yeah, and, and Sean is from Boston, so she would go vacation in Gloucester as a child, so she knew all the, like, the query that where we shot, that's where she would go as a child. And, um, yeah, I mean, and I think also the fishermen are sort of starting to disappear and it's starting to become a more a summer home, like second home type of place. And and I think there was like a little bit of nostalgia for the real people there. And, and yeah, I mean, we, we actually were, we went fishing on that boat a couple of times just to learn the process and, and, and the community was very involved in, in the film as well. Which was I fun. love that. I, I just want to circle back to the house before we, and I do want to talk about just generally shooting in New England, light quality, all of those things. But before we move on to that, I do want to focus just a bit more on the interior of Ruby's home and how you, like, we have people in our audience that are in the filmmaking industry, like I told you. They're everything from enthusiasts to professionals that, you know, are maybe trying to create this really authentic, very realistic look in their films. What are, do you have any tips that you can share? Uh, maybe some experiences of working on Coda. When you have a home environment, you're not in a studio, you don't have all the control that you want. You want a very naturalistic look. What kinds of things are you doing to light these interior scenes? Mm, I mean, I think for these particular film like we wanted it to be real but I guess not not as real where where it would be harsh or distracting like I like I've also done other projects where it's more real and rougher and 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 to me that's also interesting but I think for this film we we wanted it to still feel warm nevertheless and and kind of intimate and I guess I mean it was a small film like we didn't have all the toys and all the lights that I sometimes get to have so I think some of those limitations were also interesting and so uh, were you mostly were you mostly relying on like practicals inside lighting through windows what were some yeah, of your techniques we, I mean we were using the Sony uh, Venice which is amazing as well because it's a um, 2500 ISO. Mm. So so you don't need as much light as you would imagine and yeah there was a lot of practicals and sort of smaller tungsten units inside and and then when it was daytime like we would just light from outside and um yeah I don't know. So so your evening interiors were lit primarily by practicals? Yeah, primarily by practicals and then like just some sort of, I guess, moonlight or streetlight from outside. That's interesting because that really is, it, it, you almost can't believe how minimal it is, but it's it's interesting to hear, it's interesting to hear that. So were you doing like eye lights at all or, or 
book yes. lights, bounces, stuff like that as well. Yeah. 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 And, and for example, now I'm, uh, I'm doing another TV show, uh, Cheap and Dells for Hulu. And then we're using these zooms from Panavision. They're sort of vintage, but they're really slow. They're like a five, six. So mm. it's pretty dark. And then also we're uh, with uh, Alexa uh, Mini LF. So that's 800 ISO. So the light's a, a lot sort of harder and and it feels like a little bit more stylized. And and I guess it's just a choice you have to make what feels right for the story. And, and I like doing different things every time. Well, for Coda, how did you end up choosing the Venice? Um, well, I think because we, I love the large format lenses, sort of the, we shot 6K and I wanted something that for like the wider lenses where you would really have definition and resolution. And I wanted the ocean to like be truly beautiful and like sort of the quarries and the greens and like the water to like really be able to see it and so I wanted the scope of, of the large format, but then also when you do portraits, like I love how things fall off out of focus. So it also makes it intimate, which was quite nice. Yeah. Yeah. And for lenses, what, what lenses were you pairing with that camera? I think it was the signature primes, but I'm not 100% sure. Well, it was quite a while ago, <laughs> I'm <forgot> sure. <laughs> <laughs> I know people come, once you start promoting a show, and Coda's been around for a while, but once you start promoting it, you've already been, I mean, at least, what, I, I, at least six months from rap before you start promoting anything. So it's like. Yeah, it's been a long time. <laughs> it certainly has. I'm curious about that. I'm curious about that Venice. You had mentioned it was a, would you say 2250 for the uh, ISO? No, 2500 ISO. Okay. 2,500 ISO. Is that the base or is that that dual base? Does it also have the dual ISOs? I know some yeah, of the Sonys I do. Think so. I think so. But so that it, was it a looked pretty good at 2,500. And, and I think for for this film, it, it really helped. Also, we, we were often using two cameras or sometimes even three. So it, it makes it easier to light as well. Why did you choose multi-camera for this? Uh, well, I think because... Uh, yeah, because a lot of the scenes were family scenes and like table scenes and just sort of the economy of like the take so we wouldn't be there forever. <laughs> and, and also, I mean, the camera wasn't moving as much as in other projects, like for example, physical, it was mostly like, I would say 95% one camera just because the camera was like really wide lenses, super close and it was all steady cam and like it would start from a wide shot and it would like come all the way close and like move around. So the camera was a lot more like stylized and almost calling attention to itself. So I think with Koda, we have the language that allowed for two cameras. Let's take a minute and talk about Filmmakers Academy. And in particular, one of the things that they offer that is really unique, and that's this mentorship model. Um, we've got Jordan Brady on right now. He is a commercial director. He is the trainer of commercial directing masterclass. But Jordan, can you talk to us about the mentorship program within Filmmakers Academy? Yeah, the mentorship uh 
is what really drew me into the Filmmakers Academy. You click time on a calendar and book a session, and then we get on the phone or a Zoom or a Meet or whatever new platforms come out last week, and we talk about your project and your specific needs. I, ideally, I think someone should take one of the courses first and then book time with that mentor. Yeah, I think that's a good tip because take the course, watch it, learn as much as you can from that course, and then it'll make your questions and your time with the mentor even better. So yeah. that's just one of the many things that makes Filmmakers Academy awesome, and you guys should check it out, as well as your course as well, Commercial Directing Masterclass. It's all there at filmmakersacademy.com. Talk to me about what it is like filming in New England um, by way of quality of light or the texture of the landscape, the patina of the you know older stones and bricks and all that. There is a quality to New England that you that you know lends itself to really great, beautiful cinematography, but it does have a unique look. I mean, in the way that when you shoot. On the West Coast, it has a West Coast look. You shoot kind of in, you know, Mexico, it has that look. The, the desert has a certain look. There is something about New England, and there's a there's a quality to it that's very unique. Um, and I'd love to hear from, from a cinematographer's perspective what it's like shooting in the New England area. Yeah, I mean, I mean it's, it's really gorgeous. And the fact that I was there during the summer and I got to experience the quality of life myself as a human like it's just quite inspiring to to bring that and to be able to like capture it as a filmmaker and yeah i mean gloucester especially the ocean is like incredible and and i think there's a warmness to the people as well that that seeps through on the film as well and yeah i mean I love the greenness of like the quarries and like nature is super beautiful there. And and the houses like there's like a little bit of age. It's different than LA, I guess. Yeah, I mean you definitely <laughs> you definitely feel that um living here certainly, but it's it's interesting to see New England living in New England. It's interesting to see it on film because cinematographers tend to tend to um really embrace some of the things that you might overlook as a New Englander, like, you know, the the patina of an old ship or the the quality of the waves on the ocean, things like that. Um, it's always interesting to me to hear from cinematographers about what it is that they found beautiful about this area. Um, so I, I'm just yeah, curious also, about that. I don't know. I mean, all the, all the emphasis on the ocean and the sea and the fishing community and the food and, like, the strong family bonds, like, I think it just felt very different to me and sort of American in a good way. What were some of the visual references for CODA? It's, uh, I'm sorry, I, I'm having a hard time remembering, but like we saw this, this film in that one, I think it was like a, a, a Romanian filmmaker that shot, it's a deaf school and, and there was like no sound or language at all so that was just kind of an interesting like sort of reference to me to to understand how we would like approach the film but no i'm sorry i can't really remember what inspired us as much 
Was there, without, you know, the specifics, was it, was there something that, I guess he, you, you may not remember the exact project, but was there something in particular that you were striving to do in your cinematography for this that was maybe reminiscent of other fishing movies or other films shot in New England? Anything like that that you can remember? I know, I know it was quite a while ago, but just curious. Yeah, I'm so sorry. I, I think, I don't know, I guess like The Notebook or sort of the reader, I guess, like, almost like capturing summer and youth and and sort of that, like, last period of time before you become a grown-up. Yeah. Um, and sort of slightly romantic, I guess. You've mentioned the ocean quite a few times, and, I, I, you know, the texture of the ocean the ocean being one of the reasons you chose the Sony Venice to, to really capture the, the clarity of it. Um, talk to me about filming on the ocean. There were quite a, quite a few boat scenes and I'd love to get a sense of what some of the challenges may have been for you filming scenes like this out on, out at sea. Yeah. I mean, I guess the challenge was we, we had to actually go fishing. So like uh, all the fish on that, on that net were real fish and so you can only like fish them out twice or like a limited period of time before they're all dead so there was like some logistics involved and also the actors were they had to learn how to fish themselves and so that was another thing and then like sort of the space was a limitation like the amount of crew that could be on the boat and the safety of the actors and the safety of the crew as well. And sort of scheduling the day efficiently to make sure we would get all the small pieces that we wanted. And then we chose to go handheld inside the boat with always with two cameras, but sort of like we, we shot listed and almost storyboarded the elements that we needed. And then we also have another, uh, boat that was sort of the camera platform and we had a crane and a stabilized head and then from there we would do the more sort of beauty shots and the wider shots and like following the boat so you had kind of the camera boat and you had the boat where the talent was on and not you were on that boat as well but like yes. i'm guessing that camera boat is where you held is that where you had your monitoring is that where you had your was the director on there too or was the director on the no, the, the director, me, and the two operators, uh, we were in the boat where we were filming with the actors, and then a translator as well, and then the captain of the real captain of the boat. And then we had a, an, also a follow boat for like the rest of the crew and where to use a bathroom, and, and then we had like, like sort of like, um, I don't know, like just safety people for in case anything went wrong. In another yeah. boat. <laughs> yeah. Did you do any work in tanks or was everything actually out at sea? No, everything was out at sea. Yeah. Was that more of a budget restraint or just for authenticity? No, I think it was, yeah, I don't think we needed a tank. I think it, it needed to be real. And and the actors spent a lot of time learning how to fish. And, and I think, I mean, it's so beautiful there that there was actually no need to manipulate what was real did anyone get seasick mm, yeah i guess some people <laughs> did you 
<laughs> no, no, I was fine. <laughs> That's it. Those are always the things I think about. I'm like, you put a whole crew on a boat and you're like, all right, now you're going to be here for untold hours filming. Someone inevitably is going to have to be throwing up off the side of the ship. <laughs> yeah. No, I think we were lucky. The ocean was, was, was pretty good. <laughs> um, I'd like to talk to you about the the way that you approach lighting daytime exteriors. Minkota, like we've been talking about, is very naturalistic. You want to, you mentioned earlier in our interview, this idea of kind of the camera kind of taking a step back and just observing. So how are you approaching daytime exteriors? Minkota, yeah, I mean, I think sort of planning the day and like making sure or trying to be as efficient in the way we we would like be at the right place at the right time and then yeah i mean we had some overhead diffusion and stuff but yeah i i don't love when it looks unreal like when when you silk it so much that you can see people's skin shining so when you silk it you're saying when you have too much yeah but i don't know I'm, i'm learning to embrace more harder sunlight I guess. Really? How so? (laughs) No, I mean, I think sometimes like not everything has to be backlit all the time. I mean, you try, but like sometimes like harsher sun feels real for the project. Mm. Were there moments in this film where you just, you know, would have normally done a backlit approach with a bounce, but just figured, no, I'm I'm just going to let the sun shine in and just do it that way. Were there moments you can recall? Yeah, I think so. And I'm, and I'm getting braver uh, as I go in my career to embrace the harshness sometimes. That's interesting. That's think, that's interesting. No, go ahead. Keep going. Yeah, no, I mean, I think sometimes like to make, to try to make everything beautiful all the time takes away from the story. Do you find yourself... I mean, did you find yourself up until Coda, I guess, and like you're saying, you're you're noticing a change in your style and your career now. It, was that kind of your first, was that your go-to when you when you started out in your career and maybe even as of now? Do you kind of go for beauty first? Mm, I think, I mean, at first when you're, when you're first starting, you, you don't even know and you're just trying to survive as a, as a filmmaker. And then, and then I think I started, pursuing more sort of beauty and like I guess like in the more traditional way but now now I'm finding that sometimes like realness or harshness like I just like to make it's it's each project its own like not to always do the same and and to find something that makes it unique and interesting would you say that's a lesson that you learned from filming coda was that was that mm, I where think it, it's been a process, yeah. Hmm. Yeah, and I that, think sometimes like ugly lighting or it's kind of more interesting or or like it fits the project better. It's so interesting that you're saying this today because just, you know, earlier the, today I interviewed the two directors of photography for, or two cinematographers for Winning Time. Are you familiar with that show? It's about no. the rise, it's about the rise of the LA Lakers. It's on HBO right now. Oh, and nice. they used eight millimeter, 16 millimeter, eight, eight and 16 millimeter, 35 millimeter, and 
old vintage Ikigami camera, like video cameras, and it's mixed format and it's messy and the lighting is crazy. And they talked about embracing ugly. They talked about that. And I and I just it's just interesting you bring up a similar topic on the same day with a in a completely different style of film. I'm feeling maybe there's a trend here. Like are you seeing in your, you know, your group of cinematographers and your peers, is there an embrace of you know, I hate to say the ugly, but you know what I mean. The embrace of maybe like not doing the traditional lighting techniques. Yeah, I guess. I mean, I guess you you want to not be lazy and not do everything you always do. Or like you want to find what feels right for the story. And and I mean, I, and I think Koda is a little bit more traditional in, in, in the way I approach the look of it, of it, but I mean, yeah, I think you always want to be a little challenged and and not go for the obvious choice. I think, in particular, with Coda, like you're outside a lot, you have that that harsh summer sun going right into the the open sea. Like there, there is a it does call for a harsher front light. If you chose to do that, when you chose to do that, it would it would make sense because you're in those environments. Yeah, no, I'm, uh, yeah, I, I guess you're right. <laughs> <laughs> we have a question from JD uh, Macias on Instagram. Do you have any go-to lighting fixtures that you use? It could be for Coda, just for anything. Is What are your go-to lighting fixtures right now? I don't know. I guess, I guess for each thing its own, but I, I, I love, um, I love handheld stuff like, uh, quasar tubes or like sort of sneaking in something at the last second or hiding something behind the chair or like clipping it to the ceiling and so I, I use that a lot and then um, for the project I'm working on now like it's a little bit harder lighting so I'm using more Fresnels and like like sort of harder light and I mean light, light mats are quite convenient just because they're soft and you can like they have a low profile, but I think yeah I like I like to have a variety of tools. Uh, do you like to use filtration on your camera? I don't know. So, yes. It's it's a bit of a debate. Some cinematographers are like, no, it's pure. I, I don't want to put anything in front of the glass, and I'll deal with it in post. And others really like to experiment with filtration. So where where do you land on that? Uh, no, I think depending on the project, like I think for Koda it was more clear and and sort of crisper. But but for for other projects I've been doing since then, like I like a little more texture and even I just did a scene on in a club and we had some star filters like Michael Bauhaus, which were quite awesome. Oh wow! Yeah, yeah. See stuff like that. It's like. I can see being nervous to bake something like that in because there's no turning back. When it's a filter and it's on the lens, it's like, that's it. Um, but it's kind of, th there must be a lot of like trust in you as a cinematographer to make those decisions and, and for directors and producers and networks to go with it. Yeah, no, I think, I mean, I'm working with a director called Matt Shackman and, and he's very visual and, and he has, great sort of visual storytelling and and yeah I mean he's brave and and he sort of pushes me to 
do different things and, and it's really fun. What's the project? Can you tell us? Uh, yeah, it's a cheap and nails. It's a, uh, with, uh, Kumal, uh, I forget his last name. Uh, it's a, it's a real story of cheap and nails and there's a lot of like crime and no way. Chippendales, yeah, yeah. the male, like the male the dancers, right? Up. Yeah. Yeah. That's so funny. Wow. That's cool. That when is that supposed to come out? Uh, I'm not sure. I guess in like six months, it's the same creators of Pam and Tommy. Oh, no way. Oh, that's yeah. awesome. Yes. And Pam and Tommy, another series that you, that you worked on. I haven't seen that yet, so I'm not really sure. I, I don't, I have no real questions for you about that series because I haven't seen it, but I certainly will. But something I did see that you worked on that I loved oh, from all 10 episodes, I was obsessed with all of it, was Physical on Apple TV+. Plus. I absolutely loved that show. And I mean, couldn't be more different than Coda for sure, but must have been a blast to work on, uh, getting yeah, to do- Yeah, no, I mean, it, it was really incredible. And uh, Craig Gillespie, he's, he's a very, very visual director and, and he comes from- the commercial world so he really understands lighting and framing and and yeah and he's like a bold storyteller and he loves to see the camera moving and so yeah he was also pushing me to create something unique and and you notice more the camera and the colors and the cinematography which was really fun to me yeah, it, it, for those that don't know, physical t is uh, a period piece that takes place, place in the 80s, like kind of late 70s, early 80s, and the rise of this like aerobic workout thing, boom, that happened in the 80s. And really, it, it does such a great job of capturing that time period. Um, you know, have had you worked on anything that was a period piece before physical? Yeah, I could work on, on other stuff, but I think physical was even more fun just because of I mean, the colors were so rich and, and I feel like there was a really clear point of view. Like it was very much Rose Byrne's story and like you could hear all these voiceovers and they, she would say nice things, but then inside her head, there was like this really mean and interesting sort of train of thought. So I think, yeah, the camera was helping the audience sort of get inside her head and, and to see the way to see the other characters the way she would see them. Now, the show has a kind of a, a sort of a gauzy, soft look, and it seems like there might be a lot of atmosphere in the air, and there's definitely a very a very clear look to that, to that series. Can you talk to us a little bit about it and also how you achieved it? Yeah, we, we used the anamorphic lenses. I think they were the E series and the B series from Panavision. And then... Yeah, I go I go to Panavision Woodland Hills and I dance with Saki sort of helps you create a look with the lenses and then you like see different lenses and you're like, Oh, I love the softness of this one, but the colors of that one and I like how the image falls off and, and he sort of customizes them to you. And then uh we were I think we were mainly on the twenty seven mil and thirty five, so it was always like kind of those two lenses, which was really fun. Why Why did you choose those two? Mm, I think because we always wanted to be pretty close to the actors and and sort of, yeah, for the, for the camera to be like very active. And whereas now for Cheap and Nails, I'm most, 
I live m mostly on the Zooms, the 11 to 1. So anything wider than a 35 is like does not feel right. And we haven't used Steadicam yet. Like we want it to be more like longer lens and dollies and sort of zooming in the shot. And it's also really fun, more like sort of Altman or Casabetti style. Mm. Yeah, I, 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 you know what? It's interesting to me, to me when when cinematographers make a very clear selection on their lens pal on their lens choices, and they're just like, I'm I'm going to use you know 25 to 35 or whatever whatever it is that you had said, because it really does play a huge role in developing characters. Um, just it, there's such a difference between a wider lens going up close to someone's face than a longer lens being further away and zooming in. It just it feels totally totally different. Why in physical did you choose that look of being right up in people's faces? What was there something in the writing or in the character development that felt like that was the right choice? Yeah, I think I mean I think ro the world of Rose Byrne is kind of intense and like she's always a little bit afraid and like there's like a little bit of uncomfortableness to her character and I think having an operator like really close like really help the style of the show. Whereas now with the longer lenses, like we often shoot two cameras and, and it's a little bit more voyeuristic and sort of the operators have more freedom of finding different things during the takes or like changing things a little bit. And, and I think like Chip and Elsie is not, is not, doesn't have like a point of view and a perspective as strong as physical did. And I think, like the longer lens just adds a, a layer of like voyeurism or like, I guess, style. I love that. Um, all right, we've got one more question from our audience here, JD Macias. Again, two questions from JD. Wants to know what was your biggest challenge on Coda? Um, yeah, I guess. Um, yeah, this the schedule like we 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 had to move pretty fast, and and also like always having like so many actors on the scenes, and so I guess it was more of a practical challenge, and then also learning how to take the backseat on on the approach to the film, like visually. I think it was it was I feel like it was the right choice. So it was a challenge for you as a cinematographer to take that step back like you were talking about. Just yeah, kind of, a little bit. Are you more of a control freak? Are you the type that likes to really get in there and, and control the look? No, but I think, I mean, I guess you, you choose different projects and some are more visual and more stylized and others are more like you have to let the story do its work. And, and I think I like the diversity of different things. Well, I absolutely love your work. Uh, physical, uh, Barry's such a great show. We didn't get a chance to talk about it, but that's perfectly fine because I would love to have you back to talk about your next project and all things going on in your world. But I mean, congratulations on CODA. What, what an achievement. The film is beautiful. It's awesome. You did such a great job and I'm just so happy for you and the Thank whole, the so whole cast and crew. Thank you very much. All right, I want to give a huge thank you and congratulations 
to Paula Widobro. Um, thank you so much for being on. And my God, cinematographer of the movie of the year. It's really incredible. And we are so happy to have you here. I also want to thank Filmmakers Academy. Master your craft at Filmmakers Academy. Go to gocreativeshow.com forward slash Filmmakers Academy for 10% off with coupon code GOCREATIVE10. I also want to thank Connor Crosby, our producer. You can find him at ignitionvisuals.com as well as Dave Siegel over at siegelsound.com. He mixes and masters and makes the show sound so good. Of course, follow us on your favorite podcast app as well as Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube where you can not only hear the show, but see the show. All things Go Creative Show at gocreativeshow.com. And if you want to learn more about me and see what I'm doing with my own production company, you can find me at Ben Consoli at B-E-N-C-O-N-S-O-L-I on Instagram and Twitter. Thank you all for joining us today, and we will see you next week on another episode of the Go Creative Show, a podcast for filmmakers. Oh,